We marvel at your wisdom and your love, Lord Jesus Christ. We see it, of course, in your acts, and we see it in your words as well. Both are on bright display in this portion of Scripture that we look at today as you presciently instruct us, your church, as to how God cares for us and how he involves us in his care for others. We all need to hear this. Help us to hear and to heed, not to be forgetful hearers, but to learn and to act for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. A question that has exercised theologians for centuries is, how do you define a true church? What are the marks of a true church? Uh, The Belgic Confession gives three marks of a true church. A true church is a place where uh, the pure gospel is truly taught. It's a place where the ordinances are observed. And it's a place where church discipline is carried out. And that's exactly what this portion of Scripture deals with church discipline. The irony of this section is how much it has been abused, as I'll show you as we go through, how the verses have been violently wrested out of context and made to say things as if put on a rack, uh, made to say things that they never meant to say. But since this is the central portion of Jesus' discourse in Matthew 18, I remind you there's six sections, and this is the central section, verses 15 through 20, or the pivot. Everything before leads up to it, and the two sections after it uh, dovetail off of it. So I'm going to spend some time here with you looking uh, through this. Uh, In this, the first sermon today, I'm going to focus on understanding the words themselves, And uh, if we overflow, well, we overflow in the sermons to come. My intention is to tease out more of the implications and the practicalities of of these verses after understanding what they say in themselves. Uh, But that's how important this section is. It is worth our looking at and understanding. So first then, Roman numeral one, we need to see the connection. It's absolutely essential that we see the connection of this section to what comes before it. And uh, having said that, then I will raise and answer the question of why it matters, Roman, uh, sorry, capital letter A, why it matters, why it matters so much that we see the connection of this section. If you were to ask me, well, can you give me briefly what are the best practices for Bible study? I'd say, um, sure, Uh, I'll give you three. First is get a faithful Bible translation. And there are a number of them. I I recommend the Legacy Standard Bible, but it's not the only. There are other good translations. So that's first. Get a faithful Bible translation. And secondly, read the Bible. (laughs) Uh, Get a Bible. Read the Bible prayerfully. And my my third, sorry, my third would be always pay attention to the context. It is the most important thing, I'd say, as a single thing. Take the words seriously. Read them as they would have been understood at the time that they were spoken uh, by the speaker but see them in their context. You've got to see them in their setting. That means see them how they, how they fit into the sentence they're in, how they fit into the section they're in, how they fit into the book they're in, how they fit into the covenant that they were spoken under, Mosaic covenant, new covenant, and how they fit into the canon, which is to say all of Scripture. That all provides the context for understanding any part of Scripture. And any cult any false teaching, this is usually where they take their uh, stepping off point. They, they ignore context. They lift out some verses, 
uh, violently out of context and make them say things they were never meant to say that in fact contradict sometimes the setting, sometimes the whole Bible. So context always matters, and it's especially a risk, I think, in, in familiar passages. Because if you notice, you, you tend to think of a familiar passage as if it were just some free-floating little thing. <laughs> like, for instance, take Matthew chapter 18 here. What's Matthew chapter 18? What's that whole chapter? Well, you say, oh, well, there's some nice verses about being childlike, okay? And then there's a part about church discipline, uh-huh. Then there's a verse about binding demons. What? Well, so people say. And there's a verse about getting anything you want by prayer. Huh? Well, so people say, and then there's another part about forgiveness. Is that true? Well, not exactly. <laughs> and certainly not in context. Because if you notice, what I just said sounds like you'd taken a handful of fortune cookies and dropped them and broken them open. And they all say little different unrelated things. But that's not this chapter. This chapter is one. It, it is connected together. So, when you read any part of the Bible, and particularly be careful if it's in a section you think you know, make sure that you, pre you respect the author, the human author, and the divine author enough to read it in terms of the context. So let's apply that here. I'll apply that with the last sermon I, I preached um, a couple of weeks ago. I preached on the previous section about how the father uh, is like a sheep herder who if he has one sheep out of 90 out of 100 that goes off he goes and he gets that and so I, I taught you about how God makes sheep and how committed he is to keeping every last one of his sheep and I, I taught you the the very simple and plain teaching of Scripture about God's sovereign saving grace which just to string uh, scriptures together how he uh, selects those out of a fallen mass of humanity sets a, selects a subset, and he gives that subset to be in Christ. He gives them to Christ to save. He sends Christ to earth to save those people, to give them eternal life. And Christ loves the church and gives himself for the church, and he fully accomplishes their redemption. And the Holy Spirit is sent to come to those and open their eyes and give them life so that they can repent and believe in Christ. And thus he makes us his own. He makes us his redeemed children. He, he puts us in his family. He joins us to Christ spiritually. He holds us in his hand and none can take us out. He gives us eternal life and none can ever perish. Uh, you know, if the better you know the Bible, the more you know that everything I said is just a paraphrase of a scripture verse. Now, a good brother came to me a couple of days later and said absolutely correctly, he said, you know, if that had been the only sermon I ever heard you preach... I would wonder, then why do we evangelize? I'd, I'd wonder where the place for evangelism is. You know, it made me want to look at the end of Matthew and see if the Great Commission is still there, if that were the only sermon I've ever heard. But except he had not only heard that sermon, he knew that was just, um, just the focus of that sermon. I'll share something with you. You got a minute? Okay, I'll share a little something with you. When I got here 11 years ago, I had, as my wife will very much attest, I had in me just this driving desire and this feeling like I needed to say everything in every sermon. <laughs> that, you know what I'm saying? That every sermon had to have everything in it. And the most frequent thing I'd, I'd walk away from a sermon afterwards is I would think, oh, I meant to talk more about that. Oh, I meant to make that clear. I didn't make that clear. And so I kind of thought that, you know, as time went on and I got to preach more, that that, that would wear off, you know, and I wouldn't have that same 
It hasn't changed a bit. It hasn't changed a bit. And I went off with that sermon thinking, oh, I should have said more. I meant to say more about that. Well, well, now I'm going to. <laughs> because God saves his own by sovereign grace. Yes, but how does he do that? Well, how many times have you heard me go to Romans 10? How does he do that? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then what does Paul ask? How can you call on someone in whom you haven't believed? And how can you believe in someone you've never heard of? And yet, how can you hear without a preacher? And so he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, I'm very eager that you, that you understand me. If, and I, my, my great fear is people think that they agree with that and that they don't really. If you think that what I just said was, well, God's got his part and we've got ours. Well, that's not what I'm saying at all. And that's not what scripture says at all. The idea that like it's 50-50, you know, 50% of it is God and 50% is ours. So he just sends Jesus to die for every last person in the world, Antichrist, Judas, Peter, everybody. And then it's, it's up to us. He just he sits it on the table and he says, please come and sits and watches. Or maybe in eternity past, he, he didn't know who he'd save. So he looked to see who would make the right decision. And Oh, good. I'm going to have him. Oh, good. I'm going to have her. Now, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. It's not 50-50. It's a hundred percent zero. Salvation is of the Lord. Uh, if anyone is to boast, let him boast in the Lord. All things, Paul says, what do you have that you haven't received? Well, a 50-50 person would have to say, well, I didn't receive my decision. That's all me. In fact, God couldn't have saved me without my help. I, I had to do the right thing with what he laid out there and then watch to see if I'd take it. That's not the teaching of Scripture. So doesn't Scripture teach that we need to hear Christ and think about it and, 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 and see who he is and understand. We, we have to be convicted of our sins and, and loathe them and, and see in Christ the perfect Savior. Don't we need to learn of him and, and, and uh, humble ourselves before him, repent, turn to him, believe in him in an act of our will, our, our understanding, our affections, trust in him for salvation? Absolutely. It says every one of those things. But we would never do that apart from the sovereign grace of God. And God works in the person who brings us the gospel. He works in the gospel and he works in our hearts so that as scripture says, if someone believes in Jesus, it's because he has been born again. The spirit blows where he wills. And so it is with those who are born of the spirit, who were born not of the will of man. John 1, 11 and 12 and 13, but of God. It's not of man who runs or wills, but of God who shows mercy. Romans 9. So God works in every part of it, and, and we give glory to him alone. If it had been a matter of him just, well, sending Jesus and then watching to see who would choose, he'd never see anybody choose because we would exercise our free will to choose what our heart wants. That's biblical free will. And our heart would want to reject him every time. That's what Scripture says. It's not until he changes our heart, gives us a new heart, that we choose Christ freely. So that is the context of that. That's the larger context. Now, I want to show you a similar thing in our, in our uh, section right here. I've given you one sheet that just has the translation of verses 1 through 20. So look at that and look at the end of the third section that we just studied a couple of weeks ago. And look at, uh, you, you know, the last part is about the, the sheep holder with 100 sheep. One strays, he goes off and brings that sheep back, right? Because he has 100 sheep and he's going to end up with 100 sheep. Not 99. 99 is less than 100. He knows that math. So, verse 14 says, It is not the will of your Father who is in the heavens that one of these small ones perish. Now, 
If that were just a verse all by itself, how would you understand that verse? What would that verse say to you? Well, I think what it would say to me, if it were just by itself, the, the last, that section even was by itself, it'd say that, well, if somebody's straying, then God's going to go get that person. And so, in, in practical terms, if I see somebody straying, if I see somebody in sin, no worry, because God's going to go get that person. And I, I could pray, I guess, but God's going to go get that person. How's he going to do that? Well, I, He'll convict them of sin, I guess. Maybe he'll send them a tract or something. Maybe he'll turn on the radio. There's John, John MacArthur. And John MacArthur will tell him, go get him, John. You know, and that'll be how God gets him. But, you know, that's what that verse means. But, but is that the last verse in the chapter? No, now, read with me. And this is before we're even getting into the exegesis, the exposition of this. Read verse 14. Thus it is not the will of your Father who is in the heavens that one of these small ones perish. Now look at the footnote, footnote 10, or be lost. Those are both good translations of that verb. It's not his will that one of these small ones be lost or perish. Then read the next verse. And if your brother sins, go reprove him between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have what? Gained your brother. And look at that footnote, foot 12. Or one. Those are both good translations. What is one the opposite of? Lost. Did we see that word? We saw that in the verse right in front of it, didn't we? So do you see the connection then? How does God win his straying sheep who's in danger of being lost? He sends one of his children after that person to reprove him. And when he reproves him and the brother listens, he's won. He's gained. He's not lost. So you see, the connection is very, very important here. Now let me re-ask the question. How does God the sheepholder go find and keep his straying sheep? Well, does he, can he do the things I said before? Yes, he can do all those things, and he does do all those things if he chooses to. But Jesus doesn't talk about any of those things. What way does Jesus talk about Someone in his church comes and talks to him about his sin, his straying, his danger. He listens and he repents. And he's back with the flock. You see? So the connection... Oh, I should have stopped there. You see? Okay. So the connection there is very, very important. It, it's everything to understanding what this section is about. And let me just get ahead of myself by saying, this is one section, <clears throat> verses 15 through 20, is one section. It's not a few verses about discipline, and then a verse about binding Satan, and then a verse about getting whatever you want in prayer, and then a verse about why you don't have to go to church. Because if there's two or three people, well, Jesus is there, so you don't really need church. That is not what this is. That's not what any of this is about. It's not about any of that. It's a section because he starts off from the last section. And then if you were to look on to verse 21, then Peter asks a verse about forgiveness. This is all a section and it all goes together. And if we take any of these verses out, we will go astray from what Jesus meant. So that in place, then let's see. We've talked about how important context is. So letter B, let's talk about how it works here. Capital letter B, how it works here, how context works here. And I just showed you verses 14 and 15. You see how they fit. Verse 14 says, 
the father won't lose one of his sheep. And verse 15 says, here's a way he gains or wins a straying sheep back. So, um, what had the previous verses talked about and how do they fit in here? Well, verses 1 through 4 had been in response to the question, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And the first thing he says is, well, if you're not converted and become as a little child, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's start right there. And then he says, humble yourself like this little child, and you're the one who's greatest. That's the one who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But notice something. I want you to notice a connection here. I'll just lift this out right now. Verse 2, he called to himself, and I trust you're using my translation here. He called to himself a little child and stood him in their midst. Just let that echo in your mind a second. And then in verse 6, he said, whoever welcomes one little child such as this one in my name, it is me he welcomes. And then run your eyes down at the end of the section we're studying to verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in respect to my own name, What does he say? There I am in their midst. It all ties together. Stands this child in their midst. Say, when, when you receive, you welcome a child like this in my name, you welcome me. And then he ends by saying, when you gather in my name, I am there in your midst. So, now we'll see the importance of that as we go through this more more closely, but back to what comes before. Verses 1 through uh, 5 then talk about uh, entering the kingdom, being in the kingdom, what it takes, <clears throat> becoming like that little child who when Jesus called him just came, and came to Jesus and stood where Jesus put him and was happy to be used however Jesus wanted him. And he said, you be like that. <laughs> and so then in verse 6, he immediately says, whoever trips up one of these small ones. So they're vulnerable, these little ones who when we welcome them, we're welcoming Jesus. So we need to care for them because, well, anyone who, who trips them up, who becomes an occasion of their stumbling, he said, it might be better if you've never been born than to do that. So we don't want to be a, an occasion of stumbling to any of these disciples is who, what he's talking about now, not children, but disciples who he calls little ones. And then he, he talks about how important it is not to be a, an agent of tripping up another. And then he talks about the danger of myself having one of those things in me, something that trips me up, that causes me <coughs> to fall into a trap. That if I see anything like that, well, it doesn't matter how much it costs. I need to get rid of it. If it's as precious and necessary in my feelings as an eye or an arm or a leg, pull it out, cut it off, get rid of it. Better to be missing an eye than to go with both eyes into hell, he says. So he's very deadly serious about this, uh, about not being the cause of tripping or myself tolerating in myself tripping. And then he says in verse uh, 10, See that you don't disdain one of these small ones, for their angels in heavens continually see the face of my Father. And then he brings up this little parable of the straying sheep. And that God, the sheep herder, will not tolerate one straying sheep. He will go and get the sheep who strays. And then he talks about what to do when a brother has fallen into sin. So don't you see how all of this fits together? All of this is about the community of citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And what characterizes it are three C's. Children of God, they care for each other, and Christ is in the middle. That's the characterization of an assembly of citizens of the kingdom. They're children. They've repented and converted and become like little children. 
They care for one another, and Christ is in the middle. So this is critically important. Uh, Let's look then uh, at what the verses say bit by bit. Let's turn to exposition, Roman numeral 2, the exposition of this section. Just go through these verses this week, Lord willing, all of them. First section we see then Jesus talking about how to respond when we see sin in a brother. We have procedures in verses 15 through 17. This is what to do. I think there are five times that he says, if this happens, then do this. If this happens, then do this. So he lays out a procedure, a detailed procedure about what to do in these circumstances, how to respond to this. If this, do this. If this, do this. If this, do this. So uh, there are four possible steps, and the first step, when necessary, is given in verse 15. And if your brother sins, go reprove him between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So first, your brother. Your brother. So this is a familial setting. He's talking about someone who has become a member of the church you're a member of. He's your brother. He's submitted himself to the discipline of that community. Obviously, because the rest of the section wouldn't make any sense if he hadn't made whatever that community requires to be submitted to the discipline and care of that church, that community. So he's your brother. He's not a visitor. He's not a passerby. He's He's not auditing the sermons. He's become a member and committed himself. He's your brother. You know him to be your brother. He's confessed it by baptism if he's a convert. So it's a familial setting. Now that's not a small thing. This tells us that we're not charged with doing this to unbelievers. It's, it's not my charge to call up, and here I'm tempted to list off some names, but that would be distracting. Famous people who are obviously in sin, saying absurd things, making fools of themselves. This is not about that. Because that person's not a sister. That person's not a brother. That person's just, you know, world gonna world. You know, I mean, world's gonna do what the world does. And so I pray for conversion. But that's not this. This is about a fellow believer in my, in my church. And so I'm charged with doing something about it. Don't you see that when Jesus says this, this assumes some levels of obedience that some people aren't there yet. But, but Jesus assumes to be, this to be the case. Uh, he assumes, uh, you know, somebody... Uh, Listening to this could say, you know, well, I'm not really even part of a community. I mean, I could go, but I don't. So I just listen to sermons or, or, or read blogs or something like that. I'm not even part of a community. Well, then you can't obey Jesus. Uh, in fact, I'd say you, you're not obeying Jesus. If you can come to church, but you don't go to church, well, you're not obeying Jesus. You're not even in the place to obey him yet. That's a very deep problem that needs to be repented of and dealt with. Or somebody could say, well, I'm not really a member. I just come to hear the preaching or because I like the music or whatever. Well, again, then you're not this person, are you? You're not in a position to carry this out. And Jesus assumes that we would want to put ourselves in this position. Somebody else could say, well, you know, this is never going to happen to me because I just don't get involved with people. Once the sermon is done, I am out of there. I don't want to know what people's problems are. I don't want to know their names. I don't want to know what, what they're going through. I mean, I've got enough of my own. So instead, I, I get out quickly, keep my nose in the phone, hang by someone safe, you know, whatever. But I don't have any relationships. I don't, I don't care to know if anyone's in sin. So I will never be the person who's called on to do this. Well, 
then we'll never be the person to do what Jesus assumes we will all want to do because we have converted and we've become like little children and we look at accepting each other as accepting Christ. We care about each other. Jesus assumes we'll be working on that, not fleeing from it. I say that again? Jesus assumes we'll be working on that and not fleeing from it. So, your brother, if your brother sins. Now, if he sins, not if he does something you don't agree with. Not if he does something you don't like. If he sins. Now, what, how do you figure out what a sin is? Where do I go to define sin? I'm going to Scripture to define sin. So it's got to be something Scripture defines as a sin. Is, is wearing a certain kind of church, uh, clothes a sin? Is listening to a certain kind of music a sin? No, these are all personal issues and personal convictions and personal tastes. But this is, has to be something that we're very certain uh, s- Scripture defines as sin. Now, here comes the deal, though. Sin. Huh. Okay. Now, I'm very tempted to say, who in this church has um, sinned in the last week. Hold up your hand, but I'm not going to do that. See, I'm even closing my eyes because I'm afraid someone's going to not hold up his hand and then we'll have to start church discipline on that person for either pride or lying or maybe both. So we'll just stipulate that we've all sinned in the last week. So should we all be in church discipline at this point? No, when he says if somebody sins, again, what's, what's our big word? What's our, our theme word for the day? C- context. Has the, the context suggested a particular kind of sin? Indeed it has. Verses 6 through 10 is talked about what? About trip sticks, about things that are so serious that if they're not dealt with, they could send us to hell. They could ruin us. So something that is ruinous, but not, 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 not even just necessarily ruinous to me. That's the second part of the section. But some way I'm being harmful to others. My example or my words or my behavior is in some way tripping other people up. And so if I see that kind of a sin, that's the sort of thing Jesus is talking about. Or if I see somebody cherishing in himself the sort of sin that will harm him terribly, and it's a sin, that's the sort of thing he's talking about. And then don't forget the immediately previous section, verses 10 through 14, straying, straying, something that involves me getting lost. Somebody just stops coming to church or somebody just uh, showing in his life that his heart is not growing warmer to Christ, it's growing colder and has manifested itself in uh, some form of sin. Now, let me I'll do an excursus here. Just this is a little aside. I won't take too long in it. But you might be thinking, well, okay, but I mean, is it a sin if I see somebody just uh, uh, growing cold or showing that he just doesn't really love the fellowship? Is that a sin? No, I wouldn't define that as a sin. But does that mean that's okay? That we should just not care until it becomes a sin? See, anyone who knows me knows this is not the way I prefer. My, my philosophy is not, well, just let something go until it's a huge problem. <laughs> I would much rather nip it in the bud and talk before. And so are there Bible verses that talk about simply encouraging one another and exhorting one another and keeping an eye on one another? Yeah, there, there are a lot of verses like that. But this is where it's come to the point of being a sin. A sin that trips other people up, a sin that's tripping the other person, the person himself up, or a sin that is leading him to stray, putting him in danger of some serious straying, that kind of serious sin. What do I do when I see that? Well, then Jesus says, if your brother sins, go talk it over with some close friends. And 
Does your version say that? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And now what it says is you. In fact, do you notice how emphatic he is? Go reprove him. Okay, got it. Me and him. No, no, wait, I'm not done. Between you and him. Oh, okay, I go reprove him between me and him. Got it. Wait, I'm not done. (laughs) You go reprove him between you and him. Next word. Alone. So obviously the, the intention here is to keep this as small as possible. Ideally, it never happens. Second, ideally, it's just the two of us. I raise the issue and the person says, I'm so glad that you brought me. Could you pray with me and help me? You're absolutely right. I want to deal with that. Yeah, then it's done. Nobody else ever needs to know. So, between you and him alone, he says. That's why I have many times taught you those six magic words when somebody talks about someone else. What are the six magic words? Why are you telling me this? Reprove him between you and him alone, Jesus says. Uh, lovingly, humbly, but what does reprove mean? Reprove is not found in the words, I just feel that, I just think that, I'm just worried that. It's found in the words Scripture says. See, you do it in a loving way and you do it in a humble way. I, you know, most of the time you would start by saying, I've seen something that concerns me because of this and this Scripture and, and I want to know what's going on. I, I want to understand. I want to help you any way I can. Instead of, you know, I, I found that it's always, you can always turn the volume up. You know, like my wife and I say about discipline, children, or anything like that. You can always crank the volume up. Don't start at 10. You know what I'm saying? Start, start gently and humbly. You might be wrong. It might not be, you might be assuming something that's not true. So go humbly, but with concern and love. And raise the concern between yourself and that person alone. Now, now listen, show the person, assuming now that it is sin, as Jesus does, you show that person what Scripture says about it in a loving way and offering help. And then it's not in your power to create a response. And that's important to know. But listen to me, it's not in your power to create a response, but it is in your power to create a responsibility. And when you tell that person and show that person something and assuming that what you're showing is true, now he's got a responsibility. Something I have to keep reminding myself as a preacher. I preach my heart out with the, the, the best I know how, prayerfully, specifically and plainly. I know that what I preach, that if, if certain people were to take it to heart, there would be a, a radical change that I would see and I'd know about and nothing happens. Well, do I care? Yeah, I really do care. I I care a lot. The better you know me, the more you know I care. But I'm not the Holy Spirit. I I can't make a thing happen. And my responsibility is to show you what Scripture says and make it your responsibility to act on it like I'm doing right now (laughs) in this sermon. So So you do that same thing when you go to a brother and show him his sin. Reprove him. And then, at that point, it's between him and God. Uh, However, he does need to act on it. So Jesus says, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You've won him. He's not lost. This is how God reclaims his straying sheep. How does he do that? He sends another one of his children to speak to that sheep. And if that sheep is a sheep, then he may listen, and he will be re-won by this brother. 
But there's a second step if he doesn't listen. That's verse 16. But if he does not listen, how do I do then? Ideal world never comes to this. Are we living in that world? No, we're living in the ideal state, that's true, but we're not living in the ideal world. But if he does not listen, take along with you another one or two, in order that on the mouth of two witnesses, or three, every word may be stood. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 19.15, and it's very important to note that that is a courtroom setting. That is, that is the context of a trial, and that you don't just convict somebody, and you certainly don't execute somebody on the basis of one witness. There needs to be two or three witnesses to establish the accusation. <clears throat> Who are these witnesses? What are, they, what are they there for? Well, probably most of the commentators I've read see that they're there to make sure the process is done right. They haven't necessarily seen the sin, but they're there, they're there to witness your confrontation of that person so that if it comes to the next step, they can say, well, you know, uh, Bob or Fred or, or Bubba or whatever uh, did it right. You know, he, he, he confronted this person in love and, and correctly and specifically, and he just didn't listen. But I don't think that that's the case. Those same commentators then have to go on to explain why Jesus quotes a verse that doesn't, isn't about that. <laughs> it's about people who actually did see the crime committed. So they have to say, well, you know, he's just using it in sense, you know. But I think, no, I, I think that these, are, these have to be actual witnesses to the sin too. And this is meant to guarantee that this is not just any, this is a serious sin as we showed in the context. And so, for something that could become so serious that the person is put out of the fellowship, it can't be just one person seeing this. It needs to be a couple of people seeing this. And so these people, I believe, are uh, witnesses to the sin. And besides, look at the next verse. Verse 17 says, And if he refuses to listen to them, well, if these people never saw the sin, what, is, what are they saying? You know, suppose I, somebody, I go to someone and I say, I'm concerned about this sin. The person says, never did it. Don't know what you're talking about. You're nuts. And the two witnesses, you know, are there. And they say, oh, okay. So we go to the next step and they say, well, did you witness? Yeah, he told them, but, but he said he was nuts and he never did it. Well, what do we do then? <laughs> I mean, because these witnesses aren't saying anything. But if you've got two or three people saying, no, I've seen this too. I see this too. We're very concerned about this. Oh, well, now that makes sense, and that makes sense in the context. Context of Deuteronomy 19, context of this chapter. God is concerned to protect the falsely accused. Let me just say that before we rush on. Uh, most people, I think, who say bright, simple things about accusation believe everyone who accuses. Everyone who says, well, you just believe every accuser, I think to myself, you've never been accused, have you? <laughs> if you think that just as soon as one person makes an accusation, that's it. You know, bring out, the, bring out the hangman. We're ready. You've never been in that position, have you? Because it's easy to make a, an accusation. And in this culture, there's no consequences. Now, in, under Moses' law, were there consequences for making uh, false accusations? I think it was a really good, a really good system. <laughs> if you're found to have falsely accused somebody, then you suffered the penalty he would have suffered if your accusation had carried I think that that's a very good, I really think that's a really good thing. But, uh, I digress, but not very much. This is just to make sure that the accusation is actually solid and not just someone with a grudge or someone with, with a, a problem or an issue or jealousy or whatever. Uh, there need to be other witnesses as well. Third step, if necessary, verse 17a, and if he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. 
And even if, and even, and if even to the church, does he refuse to listen, dot, dot, dot. That's all we're looking at at this moment. If he refuses to listen, tell the church. So this is sadly where it must become public, and the elders have to be involved at this point, elder or elders. Jesus doesn't mention them. Other verses show that. But notice at this point, there's been no need for an elder. This is, this is you. No member can say, wow, I really see this. I, sh- I sure hope the pastor does something about that. Like I always say, dude, you saw it. God put you where you saw it and you heard it. Not so you could tell the pastor, so that you could do what Jesus says to do. There's no need for the pastor in the first step. There's no need for the pastor in the second step. It's only the point where you're going to get the church involved and the person who's over the church and has leadership will need to be brought in. But if he's following scripture like you are, the next step is to tell the church. There needs to be an announcement to the church so that the church can unite to call the person to repentance. And again, this is the importance of church membership, that we've committed ourselves to be under the care and leadership of this church. So when the leadership says, we are confronting this brother or this sister over this sin, the church is united and has a united witness in saying, oh, brother, come back. Sister, come back. We'll help you any way we can, but do come back. This is serious. You must come back. To come back, meaning repent of whatever this particular sin is and begin walking with God. Uh, And I just want to notice, too, before we pass on, this is the second of only two uses of the word church in the Gospel of Matthew. And those two uses show the two aspects of the church uh, in Scripture. Back in chapter 16, where Jesus said, uh, after Peter confessed that he was God incarnate, basically, he said, I'm going to build my church on that bedrock, your confession, that truth. I'm going to build my church on that. What church does he mean? Copperfield Bible Church, Founders Church, now, he just means his church, the church, the universal church. Is this that church? It can't be. It can't be. This is why people don't like going to a church. They don't have to be, they'll never be held responsible by the universal church. <laughs> this will never happen in the universal church. Uh, but this is in a local church. And this is uh, that second meaning of that word. Uh, chapter 16, universal. Chapter 18, local church. So then comes the fourth step, if necessary. The church as a unity has called this person to repentance. And if even to the church does he refuse to listen, let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. So what, what, what do those phrases mean? Well, they, they, sh- they reflect the context in which Jesus says this. A Gentile and a tax collector is he's just not in the community. He's not a member of the community. He's not to be hated. He's not to be persecuted or punished any further. He's just not part of the community. So not a Christian. He's, he's put out of fellowship. And so here's the thing, and here's how this fits into the context. If he is a sheep, then he will listen at the first step or the second step or the third step. But if he resolutely refuses to listen, then what is he showing about himself? He's not a sheep, because it's not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these sheep perish. And if he won't listen to the word of God, then he doesn't listen to the shepherd's voice, and he's not a sheep. And so this is the best we know. We can't see his heart. We can't see his soul like God can. So God gives us these directions to follow. Uh, Can we rely on them? Can we trust these directions? Are they sufficient? We'll see that in the next verses, but let's stick with this one for now, 17b. So he's to become to you. Let him be to you. That's singular. 
So all along, the person who sees the sin needs to see this process through from start to finish. Hopefully it finishes right off the start. But if not, he sees it through to the end. And let him be to you that that's not a permission, that's a command. He is to be to you. I'm commanding that you see him this way. I'm saying that you're to look at him as a tax collector and a Gentile. So he's, he's not a member. He should not partake of communion. If he wants to attend the services and hear the word of God, then in all likelihood he may do that as long as he doesn't cause uh, dissension or division. But he's not a church member. And if people have contact with him, they will need to focus on his need to repent. And the fact that everything's not fine, everything's not okay. He needs to be, make peace with God on God's terms. Evangelize, confront, but, but treat him as such in the light of this. Well, that was, that was fun reading, wasn't it? That's pretty sobering stuff. That's pretty sobering stuff. And so that's why the next verses are so very important. Letter B, promises. He gives us promises for this process. Verses 18 through 20 are promises. I see three. First, obedience will be affirmed. Obedience will be affirmed. A-F-F-I-R-M-E-D. Obedience will be affirmed. Amen, I say to you, as many things as you bind on the earth will have been bound in heaven, and as many things as you loose on the earth will have been loosed in heaven. So what's the context? Amen, I say to you, is Jesus saying something very sober after this procedure. He knows that this is, these are heavy words, so he wants to reassure us. He wants to reassure us emphatically, amen, I say to you. What's the binding and loosing then? It's about this process. It's about binding or loosing this person. Let me just put it very simply. If he hears, you loose him. The issue's closed. It's done with. But if he refuses to hear, you bind him to his sin. And he's to be seen as loving and clinging to his sin. It all depends on the process that Jesus has just mapped out. And he assures us then that when we follow his instructions, we'll have heaven behind us because we're doing God's will. I knew somebody once who needed to be part of this process, and I showed this person from Scripture best I could, and this person says, well, I'll just pray about this and see what the Lord tells you. See, see, see if the Lord says anything to me. I said, sister, the Lord just did say something to you. That, that's what this is. This is the Lord talking to us. And so then he reassures us that if we do what he directs, we can know that we're doing God's will. We're not doing our will. We're not doing our thoughts. We're doing God's will. So see, this verse isn't floating in the middle of nowhere. Does it talk about, is it about binding Satan? No. <laughs> is it about binding demons? No. Is it about binding COVID? See above. Is it about binding tornadoes? See above. But it's been used for all those things. And in the name of Jesus, I just bind this, that, and the other thing. And that verse has nothing to do with that. It's about local church discipline and dealing with a brother in sin. The same phrase was used to Peter back in 1619. But there Jesus says to him, whatever, you, whatever things you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever things you loose on earth. And there's, there's no specific reference there. He's given him no specific. He's guaranteeing him that as apostle, as an apostle, heaven will direct him. He'll know by direct revelation what to do, what to bind, what to loose. But here he has just given us directions. He's just said, do exactly this. And when you do this, 
you can be confident that that's what heaven wants you to do. Do you follow me? Did I hear a no? No, I'll, I'll say I heard a yes. So, a yes. So, um, that is, that's the meaning here. It's meant to assure us that when we, when we do the directions of Jesus, we can know that we're doing the will of God. It's difficult. We may be uh, uh, very reluctant, but this is what Jesus says to do. And he gives us his specific instructions for how to do it. <coughs> the effect is to assure the church of God's support when we obey him. And notice it doesn't go to any higher authority. It's what's done in the church. It does not then go to a courtroom. A courtroom should have nothing to do with this. It doesn't go to a higher ecclesiastical authority because there is none. There's just the local church. That's where this matter is dealt with and it's dealt with in, in, completely and its decisions are final. And if it follows Jesus' instructions, it's doing God's will, which is why the church exists. So obedience will be affirmed. Secondly, guidance is assured. Guidance is assured. Moreover, I say to you, must see now he's still on the same subject, right? And yet people pluck this out as a precious little promise on prayer, which has nothing to do with the context per se. It's not just floating out there like a fortune cookie, dear brother, dear sister. Moreover, I say, so I'm still on this subject, and while I'm on this subject, I have another thing to say. That if two of you upon earth agree concerning any matter which they may ask, it will be brought about for them from my Father who is in heaven. See, now, besides just the fact that it's in the context, what, what is a clue often overlooked in this verse that this fits in the context? Now, it's a, that's a tough question. But did you see some word there that clues you to that we're in context here of this section, this procedure? How about the word to? Why does he say to? Can I just pray? <laughs> if it's just a matter of praying, can I pray by myself? Do I have to get a quorum? Does God get voted in? You know, God's saying, well, you know, one of you's asking, I'm, I'm not going to do this. But you bring me to and we can talk. You know, is that the way God works? Not, not the way I see it in Scripture, is it? So... What is two? Where does he get two from? Oh, wait a minute. Look back up at verse um, 16. If he does not listen, take along with you another one or two. Now help me with the math here. You're one and you take another one. How many does that make? He's talking about that two. The two of you involved in this process. So I'm feeling trepidation. I'm feeling, I hate that I have to do this. I don't rejoice in doing this. I'm humbled by it. I wish that it was someone else doing it. Can I even dare think that I could be a messenger of God in this situation? And Jesus comes along and says, look, if two of you on earth agree concerning any matter, there's another clue, but that's, you, you need a little Greek for that. The word for matter, pragma, it's a word that's used, not exclusively, but it's used of court cases, of issues. There's another word if he just meant to say thing, anything, he could have used that word. But this is a little more serious. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 6 about a court case. So he's talking about the issue of this sin issue, this specific issue that this section's about. So if two of you, you two witnesses, agree concerning any issue, so you're in one mind about this sin issue, which they may ask, you're asking for blessing, you're asking for guidance, you're asking God to help you do this faithfully and humbly and lovingly, well, it will be brought about for them from my Father who is in the heavens. You're not alone in this, Jesus is saying. 
You're not alone in this. Well, how do I know I'm not alone? Because I read the section before this. Where I know the sheep herder doesn't want to lose even one of his sheep. And I'm the person he's sending to bring his sheep back. So, it will be brought about from them from my Father who's in the heaven. Well, it's good to know that my Father has this. This is not a blanket guarantee for the answering of all prayer. This is a, a promise for praying in this situation, the people involved in this situation. So uh, that's why it says, that's why it says too. Um, so it's the confronter and the witnesses praying for help in obeying God's directions and doing what he says, and Jesus assures them the help will be given from my Father who is in this section, in this process with you. His heart is in this process with you. Well, then that leaves this other verse. This is the verse about why we don't have to go to church. I, or so I've been told. I, if I were asked what's the most tortured, abused verse in Scripture, there'd be a rich field there. <laughs> this would be in my top ten, I think. I've heard this so many times, why I don't have to go to church, I don't have to be a member of a church. Verse 20, reverence will be blessed. Now that's the promise here. Reverence will be blessed. Give you a second to write that down, then I'll show you what it means to the best of my ability. Reverence will be blessed. He says, for where two or three are gathered together in respect to my own name, there I am in their midst. Well, now do you see why he says two or three? That's not the minimum for having a church. And it's not a reassurance for a poorly attended prayer meeting. (laughs) It's just not what this verse is about. It's about the people doing what he said to do. And so if you're gathered together on this holy mission to reclaim a straying brother, in respect to my own name, what does that mean? You just say Jesus' name and now you're good? No, it's, it's kind of an unusual phrase in Greek. The phrasing is unusual. That's why I've rendered a little unusually. Um, literally, it's into the, my, into the my name. So why is he saying this so emphatically? What he's saying is that you are gathered to obey me. You are gathered to honor me with obedience. You're not there because you're ticked off at this guy. You're not here because he annoys you. You're not here because you're jealous or you're just crabby or you think that you're a holy fruit inspector, you're here because I told you to be. And you want to revere me. You want to honor me. You're here for my name. And when you and these two other people who are with you are gathered on this holy mission in my name to respect and obey me, I am with you, he says. You see, it has nothing to do with what constitutes a church. And it's not why it's okay to disobey God over and over and over again, willingly not to be involved in a church when you could be. So, they're there not to follow their hearts. They're there to follow their Lord and to do what Jesus says. So, um, here's the great irony, though, of the abuse of that verse. Do Do you see this? This is why it's particularly ironic that if somebody says he's a Christian, but he doesn't need to go to church because of this verse. He's citing a verse about church discipline, which he should be subject to for his sinful, disobedient attitude, but can't be because he's not in a church. 
And that's a, it's a great irony to see how badly this verse is abused. It is nothing to do with that. Now, I hope that I've just at least created a room full of people that if anyone says that in your hearing, you're, you're ready. <laughs> you're ready to respond. Come to church with me. I don't have to. Two or three, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I have a thought for you on that issue. And then let loose. So he's promising that reverence will be blessed, that we know that when we go, we don't go alone. Jesus goes with us. He has stood in the midst. He stood this child in the midst. He said, you welcome a child like this, in, uh, you welcome me. And now he says, I'm in the midst of you who are obeying me as my children, who are doing uh, the will of your father as I'm revealing it to you right now. This is what he would want done. So now my hope is we all understand better how God keeps his sheep. How does he do it? Just by him directly convicting of sin or sending tracts or, or John MacArthur? He can if he wants to, but that's on him if he wants to do that. He can do that. But what he tells me to do is if I see a sin like this, now I'm on the hook. And if I love like I'm supposed to, I should be ready to be on the hook. If I love God and I love my neighbor who's endangering himself and perhaps others, then I'm ready because I know what he calls me to do. This is how he brings his sheep back. He's called us to play a crucial, pivotal role in the life of other people when we're in this situation. So it leaves us with questions, which I think if many of us asked them seriously, there would be changes visibly in our life and how we spend our time. It leaves us with questions like, have we put ourselves in a position where we're under such care, where we're positioned to be under the care and discipline of a faithful church, that we would even be part of this process It leaves us with the question, have we put ourselves into relationships with other people where we would even see this and be able, or where people would see it in our lives and be able to be of service to us? Or do we put so much effort into avoiding relationships at all costs so that this can't be done and we can't be part of this? And have we, when we've been in such a situation, have we shown this kind of care or if the shoe's on the other foot, have you received this kind of care? Because don't you see, this, this speaks to us no matter where we are. Do you remember that section on the, the, the trip up sticks? Jesus first says, woe to anyone who's, who's the source of one to another. And then he says, if you've got one, get rid of it. So how does this fit in with that? Well, it's saying, if I see somebody tripping up, I should do my best to help him get rid of that thing. But what does it also say? If someone comes to me because he sees one in me, I should be ready to pluck out the eye, lop off the leg, lop off the arm, whatever it takes. If he sees something, I need to listen. I need to take it. See, so Jesus gets us coming and going. And this is how he keeps his sheep. And he gives us the privilege of being part of that process. That's what a church should do. And we've all seen what happens when churches don't do that. And maybe we have been, as we have been, in the situation of trying to get to somebody uh, who's in serious sin but is not in a church who will do anything about it. And the horrible things that happened then. God forbid that happened here. But it takes all of us being faithful and committed to what what God's Word says. To that end, then, let us pray. Heavenly Father, now we have heard Your Word and it's created a responsibility in us. We pray that you'll help us to understand and to remember 
Help us to be ready to put into application. If we've already seen changes we need to make, oh God, please work in heart so that those changes start being made as soon as the earth, well, even right now as we're praying before you. And Heavenly Father, as a church, help us to be committed to honoring our Lord Jesus by honoring his words here and being a church full of sheep watchers, a church full of those who care for each other. You should say sheep watching sheep, uh, showing care and concern for one another in love. And uh, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word and pray for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen.